the apostle Paul founded the church at Corinth. And when you found something, you are the first blush of something that is altogether significant and eternally important. It has a special place in your heart. Corinth was a wild city in the first century. People came from all over the world to get rich, to have a new life. It was an explosive city growing beyond its bounds, beyond the dreams, a seaport city connecting oceans together, continents together. People came from different backgrounds, different cultures, different religions, different races, different understanding of how you live this life, and they all just exploded in Corinth. You had temples to every kind of god and goddess everywhere around. Sensuality was the order of the day. Sexual prostitutes roamed the streets night after night. It was an open city. It was Las Vegas and New York on steroids. And there we have Paul starting a Christian church that reached people from every extremity of life. This multiplicity of personalities. They came to know Christ. Paul left Corinth and went to Ephesus. A few years passed and Chloe and some of her people were happened to be in Ephesus and told Paul what was going on in the church there in Corinth. Paul couldn't believe it. They hadn't got it together. There were divisions in the church. Some people said, I like this teacher. Others said, I like this preacher. And they were divided up. Immorality was in the church. One of the top leaders was living in incest. And then you have the Christians were suing each other in secular courts of law. Lawsuits were the order of the day. And then you have all the exploitation of children. You have a decadent society in Corinth that had made its way into the body of Christ. And you couldn't tell the difference between a Corinthian pagan and a Corinthian Christian. And Paul addressed these questions. And then the church at Corinth wrote him a letter and said, Paul, we want you to be specific in what is going on and give us some specific answers to this multiplicity of moral understandings of basic fundamental Christianity. Paul's response is 1 Corinthians. We've already looked at the first six chapters if you've been around. And the first six chapters, Paul begins amazingly so with doctrinal statements. He says, this is what we believe as Christians. People all the time say, oh, I don't like doctrine. Listen, what we believe, our doctrine determines how we live. Now we can say we believe this and believe that, but what we really believe is the basis upon we, we, we make choices 
and decisions in our life. Paul wanted to get that established, nailed down. And he begins with theology, biblical truth. And then he deals with all these specific problems they had, the mess they were in. And then he comes to chapter six, and there's some verses there that I particularly think are important for the church to hear. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 9, Paul writes, Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The immoral. He said, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners would inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you, the church at Corinth. In other words, that church was in the position that people came from every kind of lifestyle, every kind of immorality, every kind of confusion, and they went to church and they came to know Jesus Christ. We in the church have to be totally, totally open to anybody, anywhere, any place, and understand the radical thing that happened when someone comes to know Christ. Let me ask you a question. Would you let someone speak in this pulpit, this evangelical Bible-believing church, if they had been a part of persecuting a lot of Christians in the Middle East, that they had seen a lot of people executed and they'd applauded it and they had organized groups to carry out this terrorist activity to persecute Christians? and that person came to know Christ, would you let them stand in the pulpit here? What if somebody, somebody looked at a beautiful woman, sort of looked through the window and she was taking a bath and he lusted after her and he went and invited her and out on a social situation and had sex with her and fell madly in love with her and arranged for a hit man to kill her husband so that he could marry her and he married her, would you let that person stand and speak in this pulpit? Well, we just excluded the apostle Paul and David. My point, God heals, God forgives, God cleanses, and gives those who follow Christ a brand new, fresh beginning. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We don't cancel out people. We say, come to him for his healing, forgiving grace. So Paul takes these first six chapters and it's almost a shotgun approach. He deals with this, with this, with this. And in the seventh chapter, remember the context, he's answering specific questions that the church had asked him as their founding pastor. And then he gets to chapter seven and look what he says. 
and now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. It was about time. He said, now I'm going to answer those specific questions. And then he begins in chapter 7, and he deals with marriage, with singleness, and with divorce. And then he goes on to other answers to specific questions that he'd been asked. Now, as we got to, to seven, you remember I took a little left turn and began to deal with the whole question of marriage. We'd been to marriage, what, for five weeks. So now we're gonna talk about marriage again briefly, but always when you hit these subjects biblically, there's always some loony fruit who says, well, the pastor didn't mention this. We're not gonna be exhaustive on marriage today. Surprise, or on singleness today. Are you shocked? And certainly not on divorce today. Well, I wish he'd answered. We're going to deal with these and we will in days to come. In fact, in the next few weeks, we're going to be dealing with sexuality. We're going to deal with it biblically. And we're going to talk with some very, about some very sensitive things, such as, don't tell anybody this, masturbation. I've never heard that in the church. So we're going to deal with God's way to live, pulling no punches. And we're going to begin with an overview today. The first thing Paul talks about in seven is marriage. Listen to it. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. That the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also to the wife to the husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession and not as a commandment. Let me stop here and help us understand seven. Paul is answering specific questions, okay? We don't know exactly what the questions are. We surmise and therefore you can take a verse here and you could say, the Bible says a man is not to touch a woman. And somebody would take that and say, boy, this is what God says in his word. In context, we have to understand things. He's talking about the body. And he's talking about the body and the culture of Corinth in that day. For example, there's a whole understanding of the body that the body is a morally neutral zone. What does that mean? It means that the body doesn't mean anything. The important thing is the soul. What is the soul? 
It's everything that's not flesh. Get that. Everything about you and about me that is eternal, that is not flesh, that is your soul and that is my soul. This body is not made for eternal existence. You got it? So what he's saying here, there was a whole philosophy that the body is a moral neutral zone. Therefore, you can do anything you want to do. And that's hedonism. Sex anywhere, anytime, consenting adults, we've heard that. There's that hedonistic view of life. The body is neutral, doesn't make any difference, only important things are so. And the other extremity is, is that the body is a evil zone, an evil zone. The body is so evil, you have to practice celibacy, celibacy. No relation with the opposite sex. That's the two extremes, celibacy or promiscuity. Now, that was the culture. Now, understand what's happening. These people come from all the world, all kind of view of marriage and sex and relationships, and Paul is trying to establish and saying, you've got two extremes in the church. Some are, are, are celibate and some are hedonistic. And then he comes and says, what happens in intimacy in marriage, in marriage, body and soul come together. That's the magnificent view of physicality in marriage and sex in marriage that you have in the church. People think, well, the church, they're a bunch of Puritans. It's the back opposite of that. Celebration, freedom in marriage and body and soul come together, and you only find that understanding in a Christian marriage. This is what Paul is dealing with. Then he talks about the beauty of marriage. He talks about the wife owns her husband, the husband owns the wife. We've been through that. See, people get married, they think there's a marriage box. They come down front, do you, I do, I will, and each one, they get a marriage box, and when they need anything, they just reach in that box and they pull out kindness, they pull out encouragement, oh, they pull out all of these things out of that marriage box. No, no, no. When you get married, there is a marriage box. But the male and the female, they put into that box understanding. They put into that box encouragement. They put in that box forgiveness. They put in their box all those things that different times in their marriage they will kneel, they will need because the box begins to fill up. And that's the beauty of a Christian marriage. Paul is dealing with this. And then he deals with singleness. Look at it in our scripture. He says, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one for this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried, to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now he's answering questions that we don't know exactly what the questions are, but we get some principles here. Now you see in this chapter, you remember the, the principle of the scribe? Do you remember that? It's very important. Paul says, 
I say this not as a way of, of the command of the Lord, but I, but I say it as a way of an interpretation from me as an apostle. In other words, Paul is exercising the role of the scribe. He says, I do not have a clear word from Jesus and from the Bible on this topic, but he says, I am taking and interpreting that for you. He's exercising the role of a scribe. Ezra was a scribe, not ordained a scribe. And he would take scripture and he would interpret it. Other places in the Bible, you heard things, this has been bound and this has been loosed by how that has been messed up by a lot of people who try to read the Bible. What is bound is a clear commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Does anybody have any problem with interpretation? Do we need to exegete that, go through every word? No, that is a command. Now, in the whole realm of stealing, there could be a loosening and interpretation of all of that in the many situations of life. The Bible does not speak on every kind of situation, morally, ethically, and choice in life. Does that surprise anybody? So Paul is saying, I do not have a word from Jesus, but I will tell you in this particular situation what the Holy Spirit has spoken to me. Now, what Paul says, he said, well, that's not right. No, that is loose in the sense he's explaining what's going on. So people get all kind of confusion about this. Well, you gotta believe this, not believe this. What is bound is a clear command, and what is loose is his apostolic interpretation of that in that situation in Corinth and even for us today. So he starts off and he talks about singleness. Let me say something. The married lifestyle and the single lifestyle are both blessed by God. Both are blessed by God. If you're looking for the prototype, the perfect life before God, the perfect kind of human, you go to Jesus and guess what? He was never married. He was single. There it is. No better demonstration of how life is to be lived. The apostle Paul was single. Now he had been married. Acts tells us in all probability, he was a member of the Sanhedrin and to be a member of the Supreme Court, you had to be married. And we don't know, perhaps his wife had died or perhaps when Paul became a Christian, his wife being a strict Orthodox Jew would have divorced him because he became a Christian. So he could be widowed or he could be divorced, but right now he's single. And he's saying, I wish all of you were single as I am because my assignment that God has given me according to my gift is, too much, is tremendous. Let me tell you something, folks. What if Paul had been married with children? Could he have done for God what he did? Traveling all the world? breaking the gospel out in Europe, could that? No, 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 he'd be so limited. He'd have a higher responsibility to his wife and his family, would he not? So Paul is saying, I wish you could be single as I am because I'm free to do things. So you've got the married life and the single life. And by the way, the married life is much more complex than the single life. 
We could not run this church without single men and women. It would be impossible if we listed all the things that these tremendous singles do for us, we'd sit back and say, whoa. Now, the first time in the history of the United States, there are more people single in America today than there are married, first time in history. So singleness is in. And in the crisis that they saw in Corinth, Paul is saying, it is best that I am single. And some of you who have the gift of singleness, it's best that you be single. Now, others would say, well, I don't have the gift. (laughs) I don't have the gift of singleness. I want to be married. But then we understand spiritual gifts. Follow me carefully. I do not have the gift of hospitality in the sense that I love preparing all of that and cooking and doing, a lot of men do. I I just don't have that gift. I like people, I like to be people, I like the conversation that goes around hospitality, but the gift of all the preparation, that's not me. But many times I have got into hospitality preparation and doing things and preparing things. I didn't like it because it was my duty but I'm not gifted, I didn't enjoy it, it's my duty. So you may not have the gift of singleness, but at this time it is within you, your capacity to be pure and chaste and to be single because it is your duty before the Lord God Almighty. Do you get it? Do you get it? So we come to this point, it it is a beautiful thing. And, And marriage is complex. In a crisis, it's better to be single is be married. Illustration, you're locked up in a room. Had you rather be locked in a room with a rabid rat? Or had you rather be locked in a room with a rabid tiger? If you're married, you have a crisis, you're locked in the room with a married tiger. If you're single, you're locked in a room with a married rat. It's a lot simpler to handle the rat than the tiger, right? My point isn't to diminish either call in life, it's to understand the context in which Paul is giving us. So he's honoring the single lifestyle. He is saying this lifestyle is blessed of God, the married lifestyle is blessed of God. So that's important that we understand the whole thing of singles. Let me say to those who are single, whether you're divorced or widowed or you're never married, handle your dating relationship biblically and sensibly. I suggest you read C.S. Lewis's book, Four Loves. It's a little dated, but C.S. Lewis talks about four Greek words that can be translated love. He talks about eros, that's sexual love and attraction. He talks about storge, that's an affectionate kind of love you feel, an affection there. And he talks about agape, that's that total committed love that you have in marriage total commitment. Then he talks about phileo or philos, and that is that friendship love that you have. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Philos, four loves. 
Now, if you're single and you go in a room and there's seven or eight people in there of the opposite gender, okay, and you're single, who do you tend to gravitate to? Probably, be honest, you would gravitate toward the chemistry, toward the eros, or maybe toward storge, you know, somebody who'd be warm and affectionate. You go that way. And that's where people make mistakes. We start off with that attraction, that chemistry, that, that eros, that storge, and all of a sudden, we approach this relationship backwards. We need to shuffle those loves and take in, in dating and relationship, if you're single, eros, sexual love, and put it to one side. Take it out of the list. Not there's not chemistry. Not there's not romance. Oh, yeah. Not there's not feeling and understanding. Oh, yeah. But you take the total expression of eros and put it out of the question. And what do you look for in that room of eligible singles that you're in? What do you look for first of all? You look for phileos, phileo, friendship. You're looking for somebody who would be your friend, your best friend for the rest of your life. That's where you start. It's true in Genesis. God created, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Then he said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. Okay, what's Adam's problem? He's lonely. What's the answer? Eve. What does God say in their marriage? Leave and cleave. He doesn't start off with get be naked and be one. He starts off with leaving. In other words, Adam didn't need a physical mate. That was not his greatest need. He was lonely. Physical eros expression wasn't the answer for him. It was he had to leave. In other words, now he needed a friend, a friend you could confide in and listen to and be there for you. That's where singles mess up over and over and over again. And friendship doesn't happen like zip. It takes time. I married a 65-year-old woman. I was single for two years. I know about singleness. And she'd never married. But I had known her since she was 15, her mother, her dad. I presided at their funerals, the funeral of her, of her brother. I knew everything almost you could find out about Lisa as a friend, as an associate for most of her life since she was 15. So getting married, friendship was already there. Understanding was already there. Confidence already there. I do not recognize, you know, 60 years to do that. But you start off with friendship. And so many people, particularly men, are stupid when they're single and they go back to get married again. Absolutely stupid, insensitivity. And that's what you look for, friendship. I just heard, not in this church, a guy was getting married. He went to his attorney, he said, I wanna change my will. And I want my will to be to my children and the 
guardian of my children, their responsibility would go to my soon-to-be ex-wife. The attorney said, okay. She said, also, I want the executor of my state to be my ex-wife. Attorney said, okay, but do you know what you're saying? You're about to marry somebody. Why not your wife-to-be? He said, oh, she's, you can't, I don't know about her. She's sort of capricious, and I don't know how this thing's going to end up. And, and the attorney said, do you know what you're saying? You start with friendship. If your wife, your husband is not your best friend, if you've got somebody, oh, that's a better friend than you are, you're in trouble. Start with friendship. And then you get the order of these loves right. You start with phileo, philos. You start with friendship. And then that friendship warms and becomes storge. It becomes affection. And then finally it becomes agape. And then you make that commitment everything you have, highest priority of your life, total commitment of love, and then comes a total expression of eros. You get that backwards and you will be fouled up so many times, not every time, because we know today divorce is in decline because there's so much cohabitation. You know, let's, let's live together and we'll see if it works out. Those who cohabitate they get married about 63% of the time, but only about 36% of those marriages last. So if you're marriage to last, you don't begin with cohabitation. You don't begin there. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the sexual Relationship and marriage is expression and celebration and sacred. I'm saying outside of marriage, it is zero and null. I'm saying in dating relationship, you're looking for somebody who will be your best friend and confident in your life because marriage is dangerous. Your mate can completely reprogram your life and your self-image. If you get married, and you think, well, I'm fairly intelligent. And your wife and husband says, you are stupid. You just can't think clearly. That mate is reprogramming you. And they can reprogram you, reprogram you positively or negatively. They can say, man, you know, I think that you, you have this and you didn't know it. And it, it works both ways. Ladies and gentlemen, marriage is the biggest decision anybody makes outside the decision to receive Jesus Christ. So make sure if you want your marriage to sing, we've been talking about that for about five weeks now, go back and listen and study and it'll work every single time. We talk about singleness. Then we talk about divorce. Uh, from a secular view, these are some of the reasons that divorces take place. Look at them. Growing apart, losing a sense of closeness, not feeling loved and appreciated by a spouse, sexual intimacy problems, big, serious difficulties in values or lifestyle, spouse unwilling and unable to meet partner's need, frequently feels put down and belittled by spouse. By the way, men, 
in marriage, the husband puts that one at the highest problem. When you look, I looked at a whole study, frequently feels put down a little by spouse. When that happens to men, particularly, it can work both ways, understand, well, that, that is a big reason. Emotional problems of spouse, seven. Eight, conflict about spending and handling money, nine. Severe, intense conflict and frequent fighting, 10. Conflicts about role, that is about division of labor. Now this is a secular study of what leads to divorce. But you know who is Phi Beta Kappa stupid in divorce and problems when in marriage? Here's a guy who's been playing golf all day, Saturday, 36 holes. He comes in, his wife's not at home. There's a note on the refrigerator that says, it's not working. I'm sick of it. I'm going to be with my mother. And this dunce husband opens the refrigerator and says, the lights are on. Everything, the, the drinks are cool. And he closes the door and says, I wonder what she's talking about. <laughs> Two of one, sensitivity. Divorce is a devastating thing. You know what God says about divorce? He says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. Guess what? Every man who's ever been a part of divorce would say the same thing. Every woman who's ever been a part of divorce would say the same thing. Every son, every daughter who's been part of a divorce would say the very same thing. God hates it. All of us, I have, you have, and your families have been involved in it. And God hates it. And, and what happens in divorce is a devastating thing because remember, I've already told you, what is divorce? It is suicide. Two become one and that one dies. That's divorce. It is suicide. So we look at the Bible and we say, well, what does God say about divorce? And I want you to see, God says, there are three areas Three areas in which God speaks clearly about divorce in several different passages. Number one, Jesus says, the Pharisees ask him about divorce, trying to trap him between the two extremes. Remember the extremes of that day? In, in, in Roman culture, for 500 plus years, there was not a single divorce in the Roman Empire. Then any record is kept, and they keep records about everything. Did you get that? 500 years, no divorce in the Roman Empire. Why? The father was King Kong. The father determined everything. And marriages were handled by negotiation between the father of this female and the father of this male and a dowry was set up, and this happened when usually the children were about three years old. Hello. And I will give you my daughter when your son comes of age, and I will give you this dowry, this amount of money to 
take care of her and keep up with her. And there's where the negotiation took place, right there. And therefore, in Rome, they didn't have divorce, but remember the Romans conquered the Greeks? But the Greeks conquered the Romans' culture. And in Greece, hey, man, I don't like the way you cooked my eggs this morning. I'm out of here. We're getting a divorce. Bang, it was done. Promiscuous society. And there, when the Romans came down to Corinth and they began to fill up other parts of the world, suddenly the Greek culture, though they lost the war, the Greeks won the culture, and now divorce was rampant there in Corinth. And so we see this is what happens. You know about buyer's remorse? Buyer's remorse. You may not know that everything that is purchased, a study has been given, everything that has been purchased by all of us in America, 486 billion items are returned. Did you get that? Everything that's purchased in America, 486 of them are returned to the company. That's 10.6% of everything we buy is returned. And they have studied realtor groups and sales groups, and they study all this very carefully. And they said, why? And for two reasons. Unmet expectations, number one. It didn't work as simple for you as it did on television, right? It didn't cure St. Vitus' disease as they thought it would, right? Whatever. Unmet expectations. Number two, I got a better product. Yeah, got a better product. And does this sound like marriage today? Get married, unexpected, unanticipated. It wasn't what I thought it was gonna be. Expectation didn't live up to it. Therefore, I'm getting divorced. Or, man, I've got this fine, handsome guy and he's interested in me and I'm just moving away from you, partner. I've got a better thing. Interesting in all of this, in the secular market, men usually realize, first of all, in the secular buying and selling world, they usually recognize it's not meeting my expectations. And they usually exercise, you understand there's a better deal. Men are fast at that. But men rarely, compared to women, want a refund. They don't send it back. Women, men, they send it back. They want a refund. And the same way in marriage relationships. Women file for divorce many times more than men do, though men realize the Expectations are met, and man, there may be a better one, or a cuter one out here, or a richer one out here. Interesting. Just like in divorce in ancient days, I'm sending her back, and here's a dowry that I gave you in the first place. Divorce is deadly. Biblical grounds for divorce. Number one. The Pharisees asked Jesus, what about divorce? Jesus says, no divorce except, Matthew 19, for pornea, for sexual, for adultery. 
But the Pharisees wanted to trap him. They said, ho, 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 wait a minute. Moses said all you had to do is get two witnesses and give a certificate and you're divorced. And Jesus says, it was not like that in the beginning. Divorce takes place now because of hardness of heart. Hardness of heart, what in the world is that? Dispute with your wife, your husband. There's a bruised heart, right? We all know that. Then it sticks around for a while and that bruised heart becomes a cool heart. We talk, but it's very formal. Certainly, I'll be happy to do that. Uh, It's a coolness, you know? Don't sit there so pious. You're with me, I know. There's a cool heart. And then that can move to a hard heart Arguing, fighting, blah, ah, ah. And then it can move to an apathetic heart. And that's a really big problem. I don't care what he does. I don't care what she does. I'm bad. But a hard heart. Jesus said, this is allowed because of marriages. There comes this hard, ungodly heart. And it's expressed through adultery, a grounds for divorce. And then Paul elaborates on this in our passage. In this seventh chapter of Corinthians, he talks about desertion. And that's a wide expanding word. You have to be careful how we use it. But it means here's someone who is, who is brutal. There's someone who goes to physical or overwhelming uh, emotional put down. They, they deserted, they leave, they're not apart. They're there in body, but they're not there at all. There's desertion is the ground. Paul deals with that. And then finally, The third ground is, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter number five. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. All things are new. What does it mean for all things to be new? It means all things are new. It means prior to being a Christian, there could be a divorce, and that divorce in God's sight no longer existed because you are a new man or a new woman. Now, let me tell you how serious this is, and I'll read you a tragic letter. There's a website. I'll not tell you what it is. In fact, I don't even know it myself. Somebody shared this with me. There's a website that's for feminists, who've gone through a divorce, and supposedly it is a website that gives these females encouragement about what they've done. But somehow this letter came out on that website recently, and it says, I'm one of those sorry blankety-blank profanity that cheated on his wife of 20 years and two kids with her best friend. I married the best friend the day after my divorce was final and I regretted it ever since, every second of my life. Yep, you get what you deserve in this life. My divorce regret is immense. I would give anything to go back in time knowing what I, what I know now and, and love my first wife like she's never been loved, honored, appreciated, respected, or admired in her life, but I can't. I fouled up beyond words. I had the best life anyone could have asked for, beautiful, loving, caring, dedicated wife, two beautiful, sweet kids, 
an in-law family that loved me dearly, but I was bored with all that. People kept telling me how blessed I was, but I couldn't see it. I was blinded by selfishness, so I threw it all away to someone that I thought was my soulmate. Oh, how wrong I was, so wrong. Five years later, I still can't ignore the overwhelming guilt and shame of what I did. Only for a couple of minutes a day does the memory of my first wife and kids and family leave my mind. I can't watch a movie or listen to music without thinking of her. See, I was already married to my soulmate and my true love, but I threw her away. Oh, if only life was like the movies where sometimes we get second chances. I can't put into words how much pain I feel, but I know it pales in comparison to how I broke my wife's heart. I'm so sorry, sweetness. If you ever read this, I'm so sorry, so very, very sorry. The irony of what I've done is this. I've broken my own heart, anonymous. Now folks, don't let divorce define your life. Whatever, guilty, not guilty, whatever. God in Jesus Christ heals, restores, forgives, and gives us a brand new start and with the power of Christ in your life and the Holy Spirit, there can be joy in the days to come. That is the thrust of God's Word.